Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. If you are taking notes, the title of my message today is, But It's Saturday. And really the only real way to say this is like, but it's Saturday. How many of you have heard this reply from someone in your life at some point, but it's Saturday? How many of you have said this to someone? Uh, yeah. And uh, some of you, like, that you said something to someone and they replied with this. And then when they asked you something, then you replied the same exact way. And it felt mutually annoying, which is great. Um, I, I have, I have recently, uh, not recently, but like I, you know, just since becoming a parent, um, it's become really apparent, like at every single age and stage of my kids that we have a different idea about what Saturday is for. And, uh, maybe you had this, this thought of, with your parents, uh, when you were a kid, but, um, there is this discrepancy on how adults and kids view Saturday and it's caused many fights in our family. Like, uh, and not that I'm trying to start a fight, but just innocuously, my wife or I will say to our kids on a Saturday morning, like, Hey guys, before you, uh, jump on your phone, you know, before you start that, uh, video game marathon, uh, before you decide to reorganize your closet for the 15th time, uh, that's more my daughter, not my sons. Um, although my one son is organizing his shoes every 15 days. And so that's, that's a thing that's happening now. I'm like, before you do that, we're all gonna pick up the house together and instantly freakouts. Just like, what? No! No! It's Saturday. We sh- I should be able to do whatever I want to, okay? I already have plans that I made with myself, and I shouldn't have to do what you want. None of my friends have to do all this stuff, okay? You guys are slave drivers. This is abusive. You never heard of child labor laws? And then I'm like, my wife is, our boys are homeschooled, so I'm like, why are you even teaching them that? Like, we don't even, we can just admit that from the curriculum. You're getting in your own way here on some of these things. And, you know, like, they get frustrated, and then they're like, well, are you going to pay us? And I'm like, I do pay you. I allow you to live on the premises. I feed you, okay? You're, you don't have to go around naked, okay? Zeke, sometimes you choose to, but that's your choice, buddy. You just like to be in briefs, and I respect that, okay? But, like, we do so much for you, okay? This is the one thing we want you to, to do. And, and they're just like, well, I don't get it. The house is already clean. Isn't it interesting how definitions of clean can vary from person to person and age bracket to age bracket? It's already clean. Why do we even have to do this? And I'm like, well, your mother is, she's going to, we're going to have some people. She invited some people to come over later, and she wants it clean her way. And they're like, we're not even doing this for us. We're doing it for other people. I don't even, I don't even care about this. And that's usually when I start to get frustrated and I'm just like, I don't care about this either. Okay. <laughs> but I care about your mother and she cares about this. Okay. And she does so much for you guys. Okay. She does so much for all of us. And this is like the one thing that she wants. Okay. And you can give her like a little bit of your Saturday before you get on and play like six hours of video games. It's just crazy. It's crazy. Okay, so if you ever want to play video games again, you will shut your mouth, (laughs) smile at your mother, and you will get out there and do the 52 things she wrote on a list last night, (laughs) 
without complaining. And, you know, they, like, they do it, right? It's tense, but they, they do it. And I, I think, like, you know, when we get into things like this, on the surface, it feels like sort of a fight about um, how people view a Saturday morning, what they want to do. But I think that, that beneath some of our biggest frustrations are actually fundamental disagreements about what it means to be a family. I think really under the surface of it all, it's that you have sort of a different concept of family and how it works than they do. I think a lot of times in our mind as parents, right, uh, we have this romanticized view of family where we're like, we are here to help each other, okay? We're here to care about each other, and we should be willing to inconvenience ourselves for one another, and it's not just about what's good for me, it's about what's good for us, and sometimes I help you, and sometimes you help me, and it's just, we do all this together, and in their mind, they're like, my view of family is, you are here to help me, right? Like, you're supposed to meet my needs and give me whatever I want and pay my bills and take me places and sacrifice to achieve, uh, help me achieve my dreams and take me on vacation and tell me I'm amazing. And that is it. That is all you are here from. Um, and I think a lot of times there's like uh, this idea, especially in a kid's mind of like, you're not actual people, you're parents. And you are here to serve me and make my life Amazing. In fact, it never even really oftentimes occurs to kids that parents have needs and wants and desires. It's like, <laughs> what? You're a nurturing robot. You are not even really human. That's the, sort of the way that kids can often think until they reach this place where it occurs to them that every single person in the family is that. They're a person. But it takes a lot of maturity to get to this place where we realize this thing. And eventually, the tension of and the discrepancy between these two different ideas is going to come to a head. Having different expectations of family can create a lot of tension in your family. And you've experienced this not just with kids, but with other people and other branches of your family. And the reason for this is that, you know, what we deem acceptable in a relationship is determined by how we define the relationship. This is how all relationships work, because labels inform expectations, right? Like if, if, you, uh, if your relationship with someone else, if you would define it as like, oh, I'm your boyfriend, Okay, then that means certain things. Like, I, I get that there's probably a handful of expectations that you might have of me that I would have of you of sort of how this relationship is going to work. If we're just friends, that's a totally different thing. I don't, ex I don't have the same expectations because the definition is a little bit different. If I'm just a weird guy you work with, that's totally different than just friends and boyfriend. Okay, totally different category. And a lot of times conflict comes in, into the story when we have different definitions about what sort of a relationship this is and what that means. And we've all been there. I wonder if you've ever been in a relationship that you never really defined, but you thought you understood what it was. And then you threw out an expectation and they acted confused or annoyed, or rolled their eyes, or laughed at you, and you realize, like, I, I think we have different definitions of what this is and what that means. And I, I think all sorts of, this happens all sorts of us in different sorts of ways. 
I think this happens to us often in faith communities as well. Like someone reads a verse or they make an ask or they outline an, uh, an expectation or drop a challenge. And our thought is like, whoa, 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 you, you can't say that. You can't ask me that. You, you shouldn't expect that. Like, uh, who do you think that we are to each other? What do you think this is? And what do you think that means? And I think in our culture, particularly, we increasingly don't want to commit to anything because we don't want the expectations that might come with it. Like, I don't, how many times does this happen to you where you're just like, so can we count on you to be there? Whatever the thing is that you're doing, right? A party, a get together, a hangout, whatever. And, and they're just like, you know what? I'm, I'm not sure. You know what? Um, look forward to us being there, but don't count on us, okay? Because we're not, we're not sure. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see is one of the most annoying phrases to me because I feel like it means you want me to fully prepare for something and then you have permission to just like not care that I got ready for you. Like I don't really always like that, right? I don't know if I want to volunteer consistently. Maybe I'll just, sometimes I'll just show up early, right? And then maybe you could just throw me into something or, or, or not, you know? Um, it'll probably not happen very often except when I'm feeling like it. I also, I don't really like deadlines. Can I just get you that whenever I feel like it, you know, which anytime in the next seven years, maybe I'll just turn that thing in. And really, I think the sentiment behind this, right, is that I don't want to be responsible for it, but I would like to receive the rewards of it. And I think that this is sort of our default positioning to a lot of things in life because we exist inside of a consumeristic culture. We avoid ongoing requirements, limitations, and expectations. And I think there's a really good reason for this. We're afraid of being taken advantage of. And the reason we're afraid of being taken advantage of is because we've been taken advantage of before. And in the wake of that, we're like, never again. I learned my lesson, never again. Because I trusted, I went along. I tried to be a team player. I was invested, but they weren't, right? They got what they needed, but I didn't. And I'm not doing that anymore. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try and see how much I can get without having to give anything in return. And here's the deal. I will know that you're up to something shady if you ask for anything else. And for some of us, I think this apprehension right here has framed our entire approach to God in the church. And because of that, our experiences of God and church or a spiritual community looks a lot different than the early church, the one that got off the ground immediately after Jesus was here on earth. Listen to the way that like the early church is described. Acts chapter four, verse 32 says this, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. Now, this is interesting. And like when I read this, it's sort of like, oh, that's a, what, a, what a fascinating snippet in history those people were so great on accident. But it wasn't just that they did this thing. Uh, if you dig into the, the, the history of the early church, they were actually instructed 
to do this sort of stuff. Listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. This is a pastoral letter written to an early church about how to conduct their lives and live their, out their faith. It says, give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Right now you have plenty and you can help those who are in need and later they'll have plenty and can share with you when you need it. And some of you are like, eh, will they though? Isn't that the first thing you think? That's the first thing I think of. I'm like, man, this makes me feel uncomfortable. That's a lot of trust, okay? Because here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna go first and then it's gonna be my turn and they're not gonna do it, okay? And I've done that before. I don't wanna do that again. But as it turns out, these early pastors and followers, they didn't even come up with this concept. They stole it from Jesus, from things that he said that he seemed to be serious about. Listen to these really annoying, frustrating things that Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, verse 42. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. In other words, the more you have, probably the more you should share. Luke chapter 12, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasures for you in heaven. Now, at this point, you're probably feeling really uncomfortable because you're probably thinking, and I know this because I'm thinking it, I don't want to do any of this stuff. I don't. Can we just cross out these verses and pretend like Jesus never said that stuff? Why? Why, why did he say, like, why was Jesus... Why did he push his followers so hard to be so radically open-handed? And here's what is also interesting. Like, as it turns out, Jesus, in many ways, is just echoing his tradition. So the early church that's practicing this is doing it because their pastors are telling them to, and they're doing it because they feel like it's what Jesus has told them to do, and Jesus is doing it because he just feels like he's reflecting the tradition that he came up in. Let me read you what I'm talking about. These are verses from uh, the Old Testament, from the, uh, the ancient Jewish tradition that Jesus grew up in. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. If you lend money to any of God's people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. If there are any poor Israelites in your towns, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Deuteronomy 24, verse 20. When you beat the olives from your trees, we've all been there, right? Leave a portion for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Interesting. And I, I read all this stuff, and I'll, I'll, each of these four sets of verses, and I just, the first thing that comes to my mind, if I'm just really real, is like, how dare he? How dare God make these expectations known to us. How dare you even have them? I thought salvation was supposed to be free. I thought God loved us unconditionally. I thought Jesus was about grace and mercy. But now I see what he's been doing this whole time. It's a con. He's just been manipulating us this whole time. He doesn't want to give us anything. He just wants to get stuff from us. He's trying to take advantage of us. And here's what is really interesting to me. This reaction to these verses is, I would argue, somewhat unique to our culture. 
I think that the ancient listeners who heard and read these things would not feel about them the way we feel about them. Why is that? Were they just better people? I don't think so. And I've read a lot of the Old Testament. Some of these people are real messed up. I don't think that it's just they're naturally better people. I think it's that they come from a different culture and cultural mindset than we do. Let me explain what I mean by this. Modern Western societies are mostly individualistic in nature, meaning that our priority is individuality. This is a huge deal for us. Like we think people should be able to be their own unique selves. They should be able to chase their own dreams. They should be able to live their own truth. And we encourage people to avoid peer pressure and to be independent thinkers. And groups with any expectations are obviously oppressive. And people who join them are weak-minded. We in our culture, we respect leaders, not followers. Conforming is a sign of immaturity or a failure to realize your own unique potential or carve your own path. Right? Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a joke meme because we all intuitively agree with the idea of like, don't be a lemming or a sheep, be a lion. This is the way we think as a culture. And here's why this can make the Bible difficult for us to understand. It was written by and to a collectivist society, which is why like, we really don't like verses where Jesus calls himself a shepherd and us sheep. We don't like that Jesus is like, come and follow me. Not like, come, I'll make you a leader. Come and follow me. Come be my servant. We hate this stuff. Like Jesus telling us to be united as one. All these things offend our Western sensibility because the reality is ancient Eastern societies were primarily collectivistic, meaning that their priority was the community. And essentially what this means is that they put the needs of their family, tribe, church, and country above their own. They made decisions based on the advice of their elders, their parents, aunts, uncles, spiritual leaders, Nobody would dream of making a big decision without the buy-in of these people. A person's identity came not from distinguishing themselves from their community, but by finding and fulfilling their place in the community. Conformity uh, wasn't seen as a vice, but a virtue. Like to be part of something that was so much bigger than yourself was the ultimate goal. And like when I read this to you, some of you are just like, I don't like this feel, I, this is uncomfortable. I don't like this at all. And I think it's because when, when those in an individualistic culture hear a description of a collectivist culture, it doesn't just sound different. It sounds wrong. It sounds inappropriate. It sounds ungodly. It sounds sinful. But here's why we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss it. These verses, especially the ones in the New Testament, they're not just descriptive about something that people used to do and be and think like then. They're prescriptive, right? It's saying like, you should aspire to this. Like you, you should, you, you're being invited to emulate this way of being. And that feels challenging because it reveals something that we often live in denial of in our culture, that sometimes Christian values 
conflict with American values. And the question is, when they do, will you prioritize your culture's individualism or pursue Christ-centered collectivism? And we hate this question. It feels frustrating and offensive to us. And yet, there are places where we allow for it. Like maybe this doesn't occur to you on the surface, but there are places in our culture that actually elevate, prioritize, and celebrate uh, collectivism. It, it, they're called sports, right? Team sports, right? Like we, we expect coll a collectivist mindset from people who play sports. When we're in a sport, when we're watching a sport, like the team takes precedence over the individual players, like everybody wears the same uniform so that they can match and look similar and realize they're a part of something. They go through the same initiation rites. Everybody has to go to the same practice. Everybody has to surrender some of their individuality for the sake of the community. They win or lose as a group, as a team, not as individuals. In fact, the worst thing that you could say about somebody in a team sport context is they're not a team player. Right, isn't it like whatever your team is, the person that you hate the most on that team, that you're like, they need to trade them. That's what you're saying about them. They're not a team player. They're okay, but they're not a team player. Okay, they only care about their salary and their stat sheet and their endorsement deals and their highlight reels. And there's something offensive about that because we understand sports as being governed by the laws of collectivism not individualism. Now, God doesn't, you know, use the metaphor of team when describing the church. Instead, he frames our relationship with him and with each other in terms of family. This is the metaphor that he uses to sort of frame for us what it means to be a part of what he's doing, what it means to connect with him and each other. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, to all who believe in him and accept him, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, another New Testament verse. You received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children, and now we call him Abba, Father. There's like a term of closeness and endearment. And when we hear these verses, they're interesting but they're not necessarily as like all that meaningful because, you know, family doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to us as it does to these voices that are saying these things. In the West, we sort of think of family narrowly, right? We think of it as our spouse and our kids, or if you are a kid, you think of it as your siblings or your parents. But in the East, family is based on bloodlines. It's everyone with your blood in their veins, or anyone who is married into or been adopted into your family. And Jesus defines family as everyone connected through faith in Christ. Not because his blood um, flows through our veins, but because he shed his blood on our behalf and adopts us into his family. And to him, and this is the key, that means something very specific. When he calls us family, that means something to him that we might be missing. 
Because in Jesus' Eastern collectivist culture, being a part of a family came with expectations and obligations. And maybe you're thinking like, this is great. Like, what does any of this have to do with money? It has everything to do with money because those obligations that came with being a part of a family were both ethical and economical. They involved both morality and money. And this was inescapably the case. And this, again, is a place in which our natural cultural mindset flies in the face of and conflicts with a lot of what God is trying to get us to understand about what it means to be part of a local church, to be part of the family of God. You see, our cultural money mindset um, here in the West is make as much as you can so you can do whatever and have whatever you want. Like, we're not even shy about it. Like, this is what we think. Like, that is the point. This is why we want our kids to have good jobs and go to good schools, right? Why? Because if you work really hard and you make as much as you can, which you ought to, you can, you can do and you can have whatever you want. You can take care. We phrase it like this, though. You can take care of your family, right? Which to us means you can give them whatever they want and you can allow them to do whatever they want. That's the way we think about it. And that's why when we come face to face with a collectivist scripture that tells us that we're a part of a family and instructs us to take financial responsibility for it, we find ourselves thinking like, not for me. I disagree. You know what? That's great for other people. Uh, but like, I, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because I am an individual. And when we do this, we're communicating, maybe even unintentionally, when it comes to money, we trust ourselves more than God. We place more faith in our culture than we do in Scripture. I think, in fact, you could summarize almost all the economic instructions in Scripture like this. And this is completely opposite of our culture now. Trusting God means working to help as much as I can, not have as much as I can. But this, in fact, is the point. That trusting God means working to help as much as I can, not have as much as I can. Help who? Well, first and foremost, your family. The family of God, your brothers and sisters in faith. In fact, one New Testament writer says this really interesting thing. This is uh, Paul writing to a kid that he's mentoring. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. He says, Those who don't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Now, this is in the middle like, of a rant about what it means to be a true Christian, what it means to be a part of God's family, what it means to be a part of a local church, a community of faith. What does this mean? Because it, it can feel confusing. What, what does this mean? Because, I mean, on the surface, it feels offensive. And I'll tell you this, when you dive below the surface, it, it's even more offensive, um, just so you know. Those who don't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. 
Essentially what he's saying is this. You have no expectations that an unbeliever would contribute to your church because they're not part of the family. I don't expect random people on the street to do chores at my house because they're not part of my family. I wouldn't go up to somebody at Walmart and be like, hey, you have never taken out the trash, ever. And they're like, who are you? I mean, it would be very confusing. I don't expect for just random people that I'm friends with, like parents of kids on my kids' sports teams to help pay the bills at my house, but I do expect my wife to help pay the bills. Why? Because we're family. And that brings with it a lot of benefits and also a list of expectations. Like, think of it this way, because this is really the heart of what this verse is getting at. Imagine that somebody in your family that you loved very deeply needed a life-saving surgery, but they couldn't afford it. And you have two cars, and you know for a fact that you could sell one of those two cars and pay for the surgery that would save their life. But it would be very inconvenient for you. And so you refuse to do it. And basically what this verse is saying is, if that was your mindset, you would be worse than an outsider. Because you know that person. You're related to that person. They're a part of your family. You have their expectations and obligations connected to your relationship with them. Nobody's expecting some random person to contribute to their well-being. But there is an expectation on you because you're family. And if you are and call yourself family and you do not act like family, it's almost better that you're not family. Wow. This is essentially saying that if we're going to call ourselves family, that ought to mean something. And Jesus' desire is for us to see our church as family. But often our approach is more influenced by culture than scripture. And so our approach is like, well, as long as the pastor does things that I like, I mean, I'll stick around. I'm, I'm not, obviously, I'm not going to get involved, but I will come every once in a while and just kind of sit and, and partake. Also, if they make changes that I don't like or they stop doing any of my favorite worship songs, Okay, or there's a sermon series that I find offensive, I'm leaving. And here's what I want you to understand. That is not biblical Christianity. And that mindset would shock, stun, and offend any follower of God from either the Old or New Testament. Because that's not how they lived life or saw faith. And so this is my challenge to you. As we move forward, those of you that are just like, this is my church. This is my church family. Like I've been invited into the family of God. I want you to know that there are so many more benefits to being in the family of God than living outside of the family of God. And I also want you to know there are obligations and expectations as well. And my challenge to you is don't just sit back and receive the rewards of the family Step up and take responsibility 
for the family. And I'll tell you, this is great advice, uh, not just for your church family, but for your actual family. To not just, don't be the sort of person that just sits back and receives the rewards. Be the sort of person who steps up and takes responsibility. Who says, I'm not just looking to see what I can get. I'm looking to see what I can give, where I can help. When we talk about serving and tithing and giving and participating and caring for other people and being involved, this is where we're coming from. And I get that you may have been in a situation or had experiences that were bad, where you got hurt, where you tried to live like family, and you felt like you were taken advantage of. And that's not okay. That's harmful and hurtful. And I'm, I'm so sorry that that was your experience. And at the same time, I, I want to say, like, don't allow a bad experience of family to cause you to give up on the concept of family. And this is what we do, right? We have a bad experience and we apply it to the entire cat. You know what? I had one bad boyfriend. All men are evil. I watched my parents' marriage go south. Marriage doesn't work. I grew up in a church that I felt took advantage of its volunteers. Therefore, I will never serve again. What we do is we take this one bad experience and we allow it to corrupt the entire category. And I think all through scripture, God is challenging us. Listen, bad experiences are gonna happen. I'm not excusing them, but I'm telling you, don't give up on the beauty and the blessing and the bliss that I want you to receive from this thing because of one or two bad experiences with that thing. God has something for you that is extraordinary, but you have to step into it in order to actually get the most out of it. And so here's my challenge to you this week, just a baby step in this direction, to pinpoint in your life one way that you think God is calling you to use what you have to help others in your spiritual community and start this week. Just one thing, one small thing. Because here's the thing that I know, like, we all tend so much towards individuality that there is a loneliness that lurks in our culture because we have a lack of the feeling and experience of family. And I don't, I don't think that God wants you to completely let go of and abandon your individuality, but he does want you to participate in the family. And in order to do one, it's a, it's a constant balancing act. And I think most of us in our culture need to let a little bit more of the rope of individuality go so that we can step closer to community, connectivity, the family that God has called us to be a part of. And if you've ever been in a family situation that worked like the kind of family God is championing, where everybody is invested, where everybody is pulling their own weight, where everybody is like, I'm here to help. Why do I work my day job? 
so that I can help as much as I can, not so that I could have as much as I can. I'm trying to figure out how I can contribute, how I can give, how I can support, how I can be a reliable family member that grows the family and expands the family of God. I think this is what God is calling us to. And I wonder, what is one way? One way that you could do this. Start this week. And this is what I want to pray over you, that, that when you read through Scripture, that when you're experiencing these moments, that you would allow God to give you his perspective of church and family as opposed to borrowing it from your culture because they're not the same. Would you bow your heads across this room? I just want to pray this into your life today. God, I thank you for every person in this place. Thank you for all of the amazing, interesting, unique individuals in this auditorium and also joining us online all over the world. You made us diverse and you like us that way. And yet a family, although we are not all identical, that you do call us to be unified, brought together to serve and love and encourage and help one another. And God, I, I pray that we would embody that reality, that we would be the kinds of people that understand the family that you are building, that we wouldn't sit back and just want to receive the rewards, which are vast, incalculable, but that we would step up and that we would engage, that we would give, that we would help, that we would take responsibility for the family you've placed us inside of. And may a dimension of blessing be released in our life because we're treating it as you designed it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.